Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski, and this is Young History, episode 146 on Cote d'Ivoire, or the Ivory Coast. The capital is Yama Sokuru. Now, Cote d'Ivoire is the official name of this country, which means Ivory Coast. Very simply, this country occupies a lot of the West African coastline and was most famous during colonial times for the exportation of ivory. When it was under a French possession, the term Côte d'Ivoire was given to the land, and then of course when we say it in English, it is Ivory Coast. I'm going to bounce between both of those titles as I do this episode just because it makes it easy for flow, and for some points it's much easier for me to say Ivory Coast, for some it's Côte d'Ivoire, and I'm going to try and lean Côte d'Ivoire as much as I can just because of the fact that that is the actual name and the people here speak French and very little English overall as the population. So it's got French history, it's got a French name and the french name was accepted by the people we just call it ivory coast because that's the translation in english so with that being said i'm going to give you some quick facts and we're going to get right into this so currently the nation is almost evenly split between those who adhere to islam and those who adhere to christianity with a slight edge to islam as each are about 40 to 30 percent with over 40 percent leaning towards the muslim practicers this country is actually the largest exporter of cocoa in the world, which is very on-brand for this region of the world. We've got Ghana up next, and that is also a huge exporter of cocoa, and a big reason we get Belgian chocolate and all the things we love about chocolate in Europe are from this region of the world. The economic capital of Côte d'Ivoire is known as the Paris of West Africa for its beauty and Luxor, which is the city of Abidjan. And then in the political capital, Yamosokuro, there is the largest basilica in the world, which is the Basilica of Our Lady of Peace. It is even larger than the one in Vatican City and is a huge tourist spot that many people visit for its grandiose luxury and creation. And finally, Thai National Park in Ivory Coast is one of the last virgin rainforests on the entire African continent. Virgin rainforest simply means that this forest has never once been logged at any point in recorded history. So there's a lot of things with nature, with different exports, with culture, with France, all sorts of things with this nation. We're going to get into all of those right now. So I am not going to dilly-dally any further, as I always say, and we're going to get right into this thing. So I hope you guys enjoy. We've got a lot of history to sort through. It's going to be fun. So one more time, my name is Rich Harlinski. This is Young History, and this is Ivory Coast. You guys enjoy. The early history of Ivory Coast involves the presence of diverse indigenous groups, each with their own languages, traditions, and social structures. Archaeologists' findings indicate that people have lived in the region for several millennia, engaging activities such as hunting, gathering, and eventual early agriculture in times that we can't even quite pin down yet. In this nation's ancient past, there were populations in the region influenced by the Khoisan culture. These groups are associated with the use of click consonants in their language, and their presence is evident in some linguistic and cultural aspects of the Ivory Coast that still remain to this day. One of the major ethnic groups in Ivory Coast is the Akan. The Akan people, including subgroups such as the Baoli, Bete, and more, migrated into the area from the north and northeast. With them, they brought agricultural practices and their own social organization, which further influenced the culture of this developing nation. The Akan influence has been significant in shaping the cultural and linguistic landscape of the modern-day Ivory Coast. The Gur and Mende language-speaking peoples have also played important roles in Ivory Coast history. The Gur people, including the Senufu, inhabit the northern parts of the country, while the Mende people, such as the Malinke and Diola, have historically been present in the northwest and northeast. And then from 
this point where we have archaeological data and different evidence to show life, there is not a lot written about what was happening in the Ivory Coast at this point. So we do have to jump to the Mali Empire, which started to influence the region when traders of gold eventually moved into the areas of modern-day Ivory Coast from around 1300 to 1600 CE. Eventually, Muslims moved with these merchants and introduced Islam to the region. One of the main towns for trade established by the early peoples was Kong. It was also around this time that trade was opened up with Europe. The presence of gold, salt, and ivory in the region made it very interesting to Europeans. Beyond trade, it was actually French missionaries that moved into the Ivory Coast and formed the first European communities in the 1700s. I know I'm moving quite rapidly through this in, uh, in a format that is normally very, very specific, but this region just has very little coverage, and I'm not going super deep on stuff with the Mali Empire because I've covered them extensively in many countries in this region, and this was one of the countries least influenced by them. It's just that people here were trading, had their agricultural practices, and did what they could to push forward. But now that we get the French introduced, we get some serious change. Seku Otara led the Dailana people in the region and conquered it in 1710, around the same time European trade was introduced. He started the Kong Empire, which dominated the coastal nation until 1898. This was a mercantile state that survived purely off trade domination. The Kong Empire was led by a monarch known as an Alafin, who held both political and religious authority over the entire empire. The Alafin was considered the supreme ruler, and the empire was organized into a hierarchical structure that had different levels of administrative offices and military officers who reported to this Alafan above all else. The Kong Empire was also strategically located along the trade routes that connected the Sahel region with the forested areas of the further south. The empire engaged in trade with neighboring states and had economic ties with Muslim merchants who traversed the trans-Saharan trade routes, and this inherently increased the presence of Islam in the nation. The Abron Kingdom was established by the Abron people from Ghana that were fleeing the Ashanti Confederation. The Abron Kingdom had a centralized political structure with a king known as the King of Sakasu. As the traditional leader, the society was organized into clans and the king held authority over a system of these chieftaincies. During the colonial era, the Abron Kingdom, like many other African societies, experienced the impact of French colonization. The French colonial administration imposed indirect rule through local chiefs, which alternated traditional power structures because no longer was it hierarchical or based on things that mattered to individual clans. It was now a thing of who had the most weapons, the most money, and that was perpetrated by the French influence. Then we see Samori Turi. He was born in the mid-1800s in Wasalu region of... in the Wasalu region, which is now part of Guinea and is the basis of where the Ghana Empire was, and therefore is where Ghana got its name from, the country. Toure actually rose to prominence as a military and political leader who successfully united several Malinke states under his rule from the Wasalu Empire, which was the Ghana Empire. Samori Toure fiercely resisted French colonial expansion in West Africa during the 1800s, and he also conducted a series of military campaigns against these French forces. He invaded the region that is today Ivory Coast in 1898 and burned Kong to the ground for the Wasalu Empire. Toure's attacks against what became the Ivory Coast eventually got him exiled by France all the way to the East African island of Reunion, which is actually still a French possession today and is not an independent country. France gained access to land grants through local chiefs. These were likely done through exploiting the language barrier. It was common practice for the British and French explorers to goad African chiefs into signing land grants they didn't fully understand. These chiefs usually thought they were either signing a peace agreement or 
some kind of immigration deal that would have allowed the passing of European people through the land. But in more cases than not, this was actually land grants that the chiefs were signing away without fully understanding. So after these were signed, French forces or British forces would move in massively to start setting up towns, and if there was resistance, they would employ their own punishment. As these things developed, the trade of ivory defined French influence because the elephant tusk was an artisan item at the time for all of Europe. The killing of elephants was a problem for the entire period France was in power and dwindled African elephant numbers far further than they ever should have been. French rule was officially established in 1893. French rule brought the huge advancement in technology, education, and medicine. The medical aspect especially caused huge change in the nation because new medicine prevented the spread of diseases that had previously killed thousands and maybe millions beforehand. But the French also heavily exploited the natives for their resources. The French expanded many plots of lands for the growth of cocoa as a cash crop. Native Africans were also folded into a forced labor system for menial pay. The rigor of the labor actually killed many natives in the Ivory Coast. There was also a tax system influenced on Africans and payment of this task was enforced by torture and whipping, so if anyone resisted this heavy tax that was placed on them by foreigners in their own land, they could be put to death. So it was it was a very nasty time, despite the advancements France did bring, but it was an, another case that we're seeing here in West Africa of a lot of heavy abuse falling on people for the resources they have. The resource curse is very, very real and needs to be cited a lot when we talk about countries that are resource-rich but end up being resource-poor because of what it does to them. And when French rule began, Gabriel Louis Anglovant was actually appointed the governor in 1908. Under his rule, cocoa and coffee were grown and exported as cash crops more than they ever were before, and it became the mainstay of the economy. And as time went on throughout the 1900s, the abuse from France, the practical slavery that was in the country, despite the fact that the slave trade and slavery had ended, quote-unquote, was really griping the people. And I've acknowledged this in other episodes, this is a thing that is being acknowledged now in the more contemporary historical space, and that is despite the fact that throughout the 1800s, all the great European powers and major powers of the world, America, France, Spain, England, all of them end the Atlantic slave trade and then move to fully abolish slavery, there is still a lot of slavery in Africa. Now, one, there was Arab slave trade that absolutely still existed and that was present. But the even more prominent one, because of the scramble for Africa, was the fact that no longer were slaves being imported to the New World to do work in new land to harvest sugar or tobacco. They were actually in their own home country being forced to work under British colonial rule or other European colonial rule. In this case, it's French. But in any case, it was always the fact that, yes, slavery was over, but now these people were literally directly and legally under the control of European powers. And with that authority, the European powers very, very simply built systems that said if this person does not do work they can be killed arrested fined whatever so this is the main thing happening here and it's literally just slavery with extra steps every time i've ever talked about this that's what i come to the conclusion with it's slavery with extra steps you are forcing people specifically native african people to toil away on land in backbreaking conditions for menial pay and it's to a point where they have no choice and it's inconsensual and it is forced and enforced in many different ways. So it's slavery with extra steps. You could call it slavery if you want. I would not fault you for that. But just to give the full picture there, this was what was present in Europe at the time, and it was very, very much what was going on for a long time across all of Africa. So with all that being said, the frustration from this boiled deep within the people, and this is when we saw the rise of Félix Halfouet Boigny. 
He was born into a chiefly family and used his position of influence to stand up for native workers' rights. After making strides in this area, he gained a lot of support to move further into politics. In 1945, he gained a seat on the National Assembly, and he used his position to advocate for independence ideas and for more Native African rights. After World War II ended, the move towards independence and de-imperialization started to spread across the world. So, independence fully came in 1960, and without a doubt, Halfwet was set to become the first president. Halfwet's presidency began with a bang. He enacted policies to prioritize the advancement of the economy through huge agricultural trade. The coast became the largest producer of cocoa in the world and still remains so to this day. The policy of France Afrique led to continued strong relations with France. This pretty much means France in Africa or some translation of hand in hand or friends with France, different things like that, because this African leader saw what had happened to some of the other nations, namely like Guinea, Mali, Algeria, these other ones that resisted. French influence post-independence and saw what happened to them with the UN getting involved or direct wars being declared, and how Fouette really didn't want to have to deal with any of this. So there was many pro-African policies implemented in the country, but they were set up so that they did not negatively affect European settlers or citizens, and policies like this were continued to push forward alongside the expansion of many pro-African, pro-black policies. African natives were meant to be widely employed in their nation, but Halfwet made sure not to attack European citizens with his new policies, and also made sure there was not indiscriminate firings or arrests of European descendants. His policies in this case were so successful that by 1980, the amount of Europeans living in Côte d'Ivoire had actually doubled since independence back in 1960. The economy expanded widely because of the agricultural, manufacturing, and trade industries that were supported by the government. Cote d'Ivoire became the largest economy per capita by GDP for any non-petroleum-producing African nation. For the sake of comparison, the poor sector of people living in Cote d'Ivoire made almost twice as much money as the people living in the lowest sector of Ghana, which of course is a neighboring country that has a very similar buildup with the riches it has and a pretty similar history with the way it was controlled by European powers. So it's always cool to draw those comparisons between nations that are alike rather than saying, why is this West African rich country rich and this one poor in the South? It's completely different histories. But when you're direct neighbors, there is a much better connection there, even though Ghana spent much more time under British control compared to French control. So by the 80s and the 90s, Cote d'Ivoire was doing pretty great. It had maintained a lot of stability because of the fact that it didn't target Europeans, it did not heavily resist France, and did not try to completely change the system that the country had been built on for close to 100 years now because of the influence of France. Now, there is no part of me that's saying you have to follow the European rules if you were a colony in order to be successful because, one, I live in the United States and look at us, and two, I'm not trying to say that. Like, it's just not the truth. But this was one of the few nations that post-independence did not take a swift downturn and for a very long time had a lot of stability. So with Halfwet's presidency, the time of prosperity led to many Burkinabe people, which are people from Burkina Faso, to immigrate into Ivory Coast with the hopes of advancing their lives because of these struggles in their former French country. So just before the 2000s, the Ivory Coast now had a much more diverse population that included a lot of Burkinabe people. So as the 1900s went on, the Ivory Coast now had a much more diverse population that included a lot of Burkinabe people, especially in the northern half of the country. Hafouet used the country's money to build many large public buildings, but this was challenged because cocoa and coffee prices fell in the 70s and 80s. This made the citizens of the nation reject the way Hafouet was spending the money. When this happened, Hafouet implemented policies to limit the rights of people to resist him. 
economic downturn occurred in the late 1980s, and one of the main causes was foreign rice aid. Foreign aid loans for rice production led the nation to heavily subsidizing the rice production, which ended up shifting the price of all aspects of rice production and ended up costing the government a lot of money. Outside of this case, there were many other areas that the government subsidized different industries and ended up losing out on it. But despite this, population continued to grow as the economy shrunk. The lack of democratic change in the nation caused a lot of issues because Hafuet only really had so much experience. Even though he was a great political leader for many years, he wasn't an oil guru. He wasn't an economist. He wasn't perfect. So there was many areas he didn't understand. And the fact that he'd been president for so long meant that there weren't any new solutions coming to the country from the same man who had been president for all of this independent country's nation. Problems for all of this independent country's problems. So the struggle and frustration of the people against their former great leader culminated in the 1992 Capitol riots. These were the largest riots that happened in the Capitol and in the country itself since the movement for independence occurred back in the 1950s. The protests shook the Capitol and led to hundreds of political arrests. Nonetheless, not a lot of change came from these protests and the government tried its best to quickly suppress and wipe away this moment from the history of the nation. Hafwet, however, did die in office a year later in 1993. He was constitutionally succeeded by the leader of the assembly, Henry Conan Bedi. Bedi inherited power as a transitional president, where he served for two years. Bedi inherited the economy that was much weaker than the one originally started by Hafwet. Economic struggles furthered as the national debt increased because of the need for foreign aid. But increase in production and manufacturing in the 90s helped the economy creep towards recovery. In 1995, Bedi was elected into a full presidency, but this election is riddled with inadequate practice. Two of the major opposition candidates were barred from running, and opposition rallies were made illegal nationwide. Bedi followed a path of increased authoritarianism as his presidency went on. He arrested journalists and opposition reporters simply for doing their job, and then moved into more frequent arrests of political opponents. However, that wasn't all. Bedi also highlighted ethnic tensions within the country because of the politics that prioritized his own ethnicity over others. In no time, this caused a lot of fury to happen between the Burkinabe people and those who had lived in the Ivory Coast for a long time, the Ivorians. And even if Burkinabe people were legalized and were fully citizens, there was a lot of distaste for them because the Bedi government blamed the nation's issues on them. They blamed it on immigrants, he blamed it on people who were coming and not working properly, things of that sort. It's a thing we've heard a lot in the contemporary sense. The United States and its presidents blames a lot of things on immigration, like job loss and all that, even though we're a nation of almost 400 million people and there's a lot of jobs. Nonetheless, it also happened in the past too, where Turkey blamed the Armenians, the Christians, and the Greeks for the losses they had to Russia. So they went on to do some nasty things. Similar thing here, where he justifies prejudice against the Burkinabe people for the sake of, oh, these people did this to the country, I should be able to do it to them, even though there is no real correlation between the Burkinabe bringing the economy down. So eventually, the economic problems mounted with the increased corruption and ethnic tensions, and thus began the 1999 Ivorian coup d'etat. The coup ended with Bedi being ousted and exiled. General Robert Gui became the head of state. In the short time he was in power, Robert Gui tackled issues with increased crime rates. In the short time he was in power, Robert Gui tackled issues such as the increased crime rate and attempted to reduce corruption in the government. His leadership led to the 2000 president election. Laurent Gadabo, leader of the Ivorian Popular Front (FPI), was a prominent opposition figure. He drew support from the southern part of the country, particularly among the Bete ethnic group who united behind him against the northern Burkinabe. Alsanay Otara, 
a former prime minister and deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, represented a coalition of parties known as the Rally of Republicans, or RDR. He had significant support in the North among the Diola ethnic group and those of Burkinabe descent because he did not have problems against them at all. These two men were the most popular candidates going into this election. But this election gets very complicated, and I'm going to tell you why with a little bit of stuff that happened before. Burkinabe people living in the Ivory Coast said that they were being mistreated by the government because of their national identity, and this manifested fully before the 2000 election. A law was passed that required voters to have both of their parents born in Cote d'Ivoire, and this actually made Otara ineligible for the presidency because there was a rumor that his parents were both born in Burkina Faso. The election declared Laurent Gadabo the president. There was widespread anger and resistance from the people in the nation. Most heavily, the resistance occurred in the north because that is where the Burkinabe nationals lived. So in 2000, the first Ivorian civil war broke out between the north and south, and it was fought for five nasty years from 02 to 07. The civil war officially began in September 2002 when a group of rebels known as the New Forces, Forces Nuevelas, launched an uprising capturing the northern part of the country. The rebels accused President Lauren Gadabo of marginalizing the north. A ceasefire agreement was reached in 2003, leading to the establishment of a government of national reconciliation. The country remained very ethnically divided, with rebel forces controlling the north and the government forces in the south quietly holding on to power with hopes that nothing else would break out. Attempts at political reunification and reconciliation faced a lot of challenges. The country remained politically deadlocked and it didn't seem like progress was going to come. The United Nations and the French military played roles in maintaining a fragile peace, but they could only do it so well. In areas outside of the capital, Yamasokoro, and other more urbanized areas, there was violence across the nation. Burkinabe nationals would attack government officials, soldiers for the government would attack villages and towns that believed to have rebel fighters in them. It was very nasty business on both sides. They went back and forth and it was it was bad. It was really, really bad. But eventually, in March of 2007, a peace agreement known as the Ouagadougou Political Agreement was signed. The government and the new forces decided that the fighting was too much and there had been too great a loss of life. This led to the formation of a power-sharing government. This joint government recognized that there was thousands of people killed in the conflict and thousands more displaced. So, for a short time, there was stability. In 2010, election came down once again to Gadabo and the former prime minister that was barred from the last election, Alassane Ouattara. The goal of the, ele- the, goal of the election was to reunify the divided nation, but things didn't go so smoothly. Ouattara won the election fair and square, but Gadabo simply rejected it. Gadabo's supporters held an inauguration for him, while at the exact same time, the National Assembly and the government held their inauguration for the rightful winner, Alassane Ouattara. This broke out, and the tensions from this would eventually brew into the second, and the anger and tensions from this would eventually brew into the second Ivorian civil war, which was fought from 2010 to 2011. The UN and France actually backed the rebel force that stood up to remove Gaddafi from power, and after fighting went back and forth between the two powers and a lot of destruction occurred, in April of 2011, things started to slow down. Forces loyal to Aratara, with the support of French and UN troops, captured Laurent Gadabo and effectively ended the crisis. Aratara would be named the president in 2015, and one of the first things he would do would actually enact a trial of the former president. In 2016, Gadabo was forced to stand trial at The Hague for the International Criminal Court, which accused him of human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. This trial started mainly because Gadabo was seen as the main aggressor and perpetrator of the Second Ivorian Civil War that had many people abused and killed. The trial began in January of 2016, but 
did not stop for a long time after. It wouldn't be until January of 2019 that the ICC, which is the International Criminal Court, actually acquitted Gadabo and his co-defendant, Charles B.A. Gaudi, ruling that the prosecution did not present enough evidence to prove their guilt of being the reason this violence happened. The decision marked a significant development in the ICC's history as it was the first time a former head of state was acquitted by the court. The prosecutor appealed the decision, and in March of 2021, the appeals chamber upheld the earlier acquittal of Gadabo, which led to Gadabo's release from detention, which he had now been in for six years. And the Otara presidency back in the Ivory Coast had a lot of ups and downs. His administration implemented economic reforms with hope to stimulate and attract foreign aid. Cote d'Ivoire experienced relatively high economic growth during his tenure, driven mainly by sectors such as agriculture, mining, and construction. A key challenge for Ouattara was promoting national reconciliation after the post-election crisis. Efforts were made to heal ethnic and political divisions in the country. Ouattara's administration worked to improve security and stability in the country. The UN peacekeeping presence in Cote d'Ivoire played a huge role in maintaining peace between people who were still very jaded because of the ethnic tensions that were exploited for two wars. Ouattara initially announced that he would not seek re-election for a third term after winning both the initial presidency in 2015 and being reestablished around 2020. However, there was a sudden death within the ruling party's candidates, so he decided to run again in the 2020 presidential election. Ouattara actually won this very controversial election and had to push through many boycotts of the election, protests about corruption, and accusations that he wanted to hold power the whole time. That's a thing for you to decide on what you feel happened here. If you feel Otara did something to hold on to power, if he maybe had this opposition slash successor political member killed, who knows? But that's for you to decide. Either way, Otara won the presidency. In recent year, President Otara has become more controlling of power. In 2023, the year of this recording, he removed the prime minister from power and dissolved the government. Ivory Coast has had a really bad habit of allowing its leaders to really get a grip on power and enjoy the taste of it a little too much. They had one leader for 30 years because Hafwe Bouigny literally reigned from the independence of the country all the way until 93 upon his death. And then since then, there's only been a few leaders with maybe one of them being considered free and fair. And that was Robert Gui, who simply led the nation for the sake of there being a free and fair election within a few years. So with all that being said, that gets us to the present. Economically, the nation is still attempting to expand the strong economy to all its people. Around 40% of the nation is impoverished. This large gap in wealth goes back to the colonial times when the forced labor systems allowed a lot of money to be present at the middle and top of society, but had no chance of trickling down to the bottom. So today, a major issue in the nation is a lack of ability for people in lower classes to access higher education due to poverty rates that keep them working very hard just to cover basic needs. Outside of people, the poaching of elephants has been heavily reduced in the Ivory Coast, despite its name, over the last few decades, and now only a small part of the economy is made up of anything to do with ivory trade. There has also been a movement to repurpose the name of the country, the Ivory Coast, to be seen as more of a celebration of the elephant that owns the ivory and its tusks instead of a colonial name, which was a coast that traded ivory. However, the poaching of elephants for the tusks is still a large problem across the African continent. Despite a lot of political instability throughout the 2000s, Cote d'Ivoire is in a much stable place than most of its neighbors because it has had multiple elections in a row without a coup or civil war breaking out. And that has led to economic needs, which sometimes can be filled by ivory. And nations like Nigeria and other nations across Central, South, North Africa have started to import ivory into Cote d'Ivoire to be sold out of there because there's a better chance of selling 
in the Ivory Coast because if a tourist comes to the Ivory Coast, what are the odds they're going to want to buy ivory as their souvenir? Extremely high. So even though internally the problem with elephants being killed and ivory poaching itself going down in Cote d'Ivoire, it is still a present problem in Cote d'Ivoire because of outside nations pushing it in. And despite the stronger economy and lack of recent fighting that is present in Cote d'Ivoire and is not present in many of its neighbors, this nation does face many internal issues and still has a lot of trouble handling the refugee crisis in Burkina Faso. Nonetheless, the country seems to be improving by every economic and democratic statistic year over year. So with hope, the Ivory Coast will be a nation of success in due time and will be one that is able to cleanly transition from leader to leader and start to stand on its own strength and start to stand on its own strength and push away foreign influence that has always taken advantage of it. So with that, that gets us to the very end where I was like to do a takeaway or a mindset and with the Ivory Coast that is going to be change what defines you if need be. I say that with Ivory Coast very simply because this nation is literally named the Ivory Coast. When people think of this nation, they think of ivory being traded ivory being sent out of the country, elephants being killed. This goes back to colonial times. The people here are not Ivorian in basis. They are not naturally that. They are hundreds of different ethnicities and clans that have formed into one nation and accepted this name and accepted their history and accepted what has become of them. But they are not just ivory traders. It's also, as we said, a very, very minuscule part of the economy today. With that being said, these people have redefined what they are. They are now great craftsmen. They are farmers. They've fought wars. They've been merchants. They've traded. They've done so many different things to break away from just being the coast that has ivory. And it was necessary for them. It was something they had to do in order to continue to prosper and change the way they had been running their nation for so long. But it's something that can be admired and also re-implemented. So in this case, it was a nation redefining its economy, redefining its identity, redefining a lot of things about itself so it could become more free, more democratically ran, just better in general for the people, by the people. I say you could apply that very simply to yourself by understanding that you just have to do whatever truly defines you because it's very easy to be defined by other people as person who did this in high school, person who studies this, person who does this as their job, person who just is this way. It can be personality, it can be habits, it can be something with a relationship. It could just be people can try and put you in a box from the outside looking in. They could try to define you in a certain way. Reese is the guy who does history. John is the person who does mechanical engineering. John is the guy who cheats. Joe is the guy who does this. Whatever it is, that's something you can break the definition on, the same way the people here in Ivory Coast have. The Ivorians peeled away that old identity and have formed a new one, one that is growing, a culture that is growing, a people that is growing. You could do the exact same with yourself. If you were the cheater, if you were the liar, if you were the thief, if you were the person who was lazy in school, the person who was only good at your one job, these are all things that could be redefined with hard work and practice. It's just a simple solution. You just have to redefine yourself. You have to redefine the lens through which you view yourself so that you can change the way people outside of you actually view you through said lens. So redefine yourself. The same way the people here have, you can do it yourself. You can change that you were a cheater. You could change that you were a bad person. All these things can be changed. This is not me telling you to go repent and act like everything's going to be okay because actions have consequences. And it's going to be a very, very hard road to climb back from if you've taken yourself down a dark path. But the end isn't here unless it's the last breath of your life. So... With that being said, no matter what thing you need to redefine, if it's something as horrible as you've cheated and done horrible things, you need to redefine who you are as a person and who you are in relationships, then do it. And if it's something more simple, like 
redefining who you are at your job, redefining your career. Those are things you're going to need to put work into. Those are things you're going to need to claw at and figure out yourself. But accepting that you need to redefine yourself is the biggest first step in figuring out who you really want to be. And that's what I've pulled from Ivory Coast, and I really hope it clicks with you guys too. So with all that being said, that does get us to the very end. Ivory Coast is a unique nation. It's seen so many different rulers. It's seen France. It was a part of huge empires. It was influenced by huge empires even before colonial times. And now it's a nation that is trying its best to figure out a lot of things that have otherwise been rare in this region of the world because there's a lot of abuse and coups and all sorts of things like that here. So hope you guys enjoyed and I'm just going to sign off now. So with all that being said, I'm glad I got to do this one. I hope you guys pulled something from it. And finally, my name is Reese Karolinski. This is Young History. And that was the Ivory Coast. Hope you guys enjoyed and I hope you have a good one. Bye-bye.